All right, fellow fact checkers. Now, before we start the show, I want to remind you to head over and check out our great sponsor, Fox and Son Coffee. Uh, they've got an amazing deal with all kinds of blends going on. So head over there and check it out. You can get the Mexican honey prep, the Brazilian honey prep, the Guatemalan, the Ethiopian. They'll be adding new roasts regularly. So be sure to check in and see what new flavors Steve has got over at Fox and Son Coffee. They've also got all of your usual favorites. The Den Blend Dark, the Den Blend Light, and the one that we personally like around the house since... Uh, we can't seem to agree on which of the light or the dark is better for both me and the wife. The Den Blend Tube Electric Boogaloo, which is the medium roast. So be sure to use the checkout code FCT for fact check this at checkout, and that'll get you an 18% discount on any order of $25 or more. Also, any order of $37.99 or more gets you free shipping. Load up on all the greatest coffee on the market, and you can thank me later. Well, let's start the show. This episode will be completely taken out of context. Welcome to the Fact Check This Podcast. All right, Fact Check This Podcast. And today we're going to talk about white flight. Now, as recently as just a couple years ago, you may have heard about white flight from Jackson, Mississippi, and how that somehow managed to lead to the disaster that was the water system in Jackson. Um, it's also been blamed for disasters in other large cities and how uh, all of these white people just get scared of black people or somehow magically become racist or and more more often than not, they just show the, the uh, internalized racism that they always had by leaving certain areas for no reason no reason whatsoever other than because they're racist and they don't like black people and white flight then leads to devastating things that come about for these cities because now suddenly they can't seem to figure out how to run themselves uh jackson's water issue being one of the prime examples of that well let's take a look at some historic background on white flight and what is it actually and where did it come from what what really happened the white flight lie by philip voodoo and this is on im 1776 uh which is personally i like a lot of their stuff they've got some pretty pretty good stuff uh, jack cashel's untenable the true story of white ethnic flight from america's cities a review Great civilizations are known for their cities, Babylon, Alexandria, Rome, Constantinople, Baghdad, Paris, London, and New York, all evoke stronger associations than their countries. Cities are both pearls and pillars. Although all great cities, like all great civilizations, have their cycles, only modern Western civilization has watched some of its finest cities simultaneously, as if on cue, degenerate from healthy multicultural metropolises to crime-ridden monocultural hellscapes in one generation. Untenable, the true story of white ethnic flight from America's cities by 75-year-old American author, blogger, and urban native Jack Cashel tells the story of one of them, his hometown of Newark, New Jersey. If you've ever been to Newark, holy hell. It's uh, the the crime-ridden monocultural hellscape is uh, very accurate of a depiction of Newark. The story of Newark is one 
is the story of families of generations of working class immigrants who put aside their old world animosities to forge the new American dream before experiencing its violent post-60s implosion. Cashel weaves together dozens of moving individual stories, the stories of people whose memories read like eulogies to what they lost and the city they abandoned to its fate. Untenable is fundamentally an indictment of federal and local government, of the destruction enacted by the civil rights movement, and the cynicism of social revolutionaries who have controlled the narrative of the fate of the cities for over half a century. I'm two generations too late to remember cities like Newark, Baltimore, and Detroit in their splendor. I grew up in the era of Escape from New York and Robocop, where filmmakers no longer needed to invent a natural disaster or a war set to set the scenes for a dystopia, but simply set their story in a modern American city. But Cashel is also realistic about the reality of his upbringing, from poverty to organized crime, political cronyism, and the erasure of German street names during World War I. American cities were never perfect. Nonetheless, they worked despite their flaws. As Cashel notes, in America, their unlimited privilege was the privilege of possibility. It did not come in a color. So what caused cities like Cashel's beloved Newark and others across the country to stop working? Cashel, in a pull-no-punches New Jersey Irish style, is quite clear in his condemnation. What caused this arrangement to collapse in the 1960s was everything from the corruption of local city officials to the rise of fatherless youths aided by drugs and government welfare incentives, which has been covered by multiple other writers, beginning with the famous Moynihan Report. Cashel takes special care to mention this was not all done with ill intent. At every stage of the process, progressives paved the road to urban hell with their good intentions, and it did not matter what ethnic group they had to steamroll to get the job done. This is this is the government breaking your leg and giving you a crutch thing that we talk about regularly. They they may at times seem as if they have the best of intentions, but they never think through the consequences of their actions or what the unintended consequences of those actions might be. They, there are the obvious intended ones, but they never can seem to see the bigger picture. They can't they can't see the forest for the trees. It's a it's a problem that a lot of people have. It's it's a reason why coming from a background in uh, project management and, and working on stuff, uh, and not not exactly an engineering background, but engineering adjacent, uh, actually being the one who has to take the thing that we're going to make and then implement it and make it work once it's done, uh, being put together and planned out the problem that you run into a lot is the average person does not have the ability to see past the problem right in front of their face and the only thing that they can see with the problem right in front of their face is the obvious solution so once they've come up with the solution then they think they've got it they fail to look past the problem and its solution to if we do this then where does that go from there Every action has an equal and possibly opposite reaction, or at least a coinciding reaction in how, when you do this, it causes these other things to happen. And the way that modern, especially the social planners, the social planners work a lot the same as uh, somebody making a decision in a crisis. They just want to fix the problem. 
without thinking through, does the solution cause more problems than it solves? And you see it a lot with, uh, give like give a kid a problem-solving thing, like a challenge. And they may come up with a, a quick, easy solution to their problem, but they don't think through, well, what does it take to make that solution work? And if that solution does work, what about this, this, and this? You you have to plan for all avenues. You have to plan out all, all uh, potential outcomes. And these city planners and these like social programmers and stuff like that, they, they, they come up with solutions, but they don't take the time to understand what the solution might do if it does work. Is the, is the solution worse than the original problem? Despite widely circulated claims blaming white fear of black families, the racism of highways, poverty, or loss of jobs, the dozens of people with whom Cashel spoke, and the scores of records he produced tell a different story. If the past is truly prologue, that lie is put to bed in Newark's past. Destitute immigrants from Old World Europe began flooding into American cities on the East Coast in the mid-1800s, and by the 1920s, American cities were a polyglot mixture held together by the conviction that hard work brought rewards and a belief in the family. A century later, those diverse European cultures are castigated together as white, but at the time, the fact that Protestant Germans could live peacefully next to Catholic Italians and Catholic Irish was far from guaranteed. These immigrants set aside centuries of, multi, of mutual national animosity to form themselves into a new people, Americans. Even the great migration of Southern blacks to the North began in the 1930s to 50s, did little to damage the great success story that was the American city. If white flight was caused by whites being scared of blacks moving into their neighborhoods, it took them decades to realize it. Nor was the poverty, or nor was poverty the issue. No one living in the rented row apartments of Newark was wealthy, despite essentially everyone Cashel knew, including his own family, living in varying states of poverty. Crime stayed low. Men and women worked for what they had. Untenable pulls the census records from a sample neighborhood and painstakingly lists the two dozen-plus professions of the neighborhood's residents. This was the home of factory workers, carpenters, the infamous radium girls, and a dozen other working-class jobs that made the American machine run. Permanent borders were common, and the small apartments in the time and luxuries were at a minimum. Cashel describes him and his childhood friends playing a game of one-upsmanship to see who was the poorest. But Cashel adds an important new contribution to his blend of statistical analysis, first-hand interviews with the urban dispossessed, and his own first-hand experiences. He also delivers an effective critique of the racially charged mainstream narrative promoted by writers like Abram Kennedy, born Abram Henry Rogers, anti-racist Tim Wise, Tanihis Coates, poet Amiri Baraka, born Everett Jones, and former First Lady Michelle Obama. Big Mike, as we like to call her. Casual, very clear. I did. Big Mike is not listed in the article. I added that in for those who aren't watching the video. Casual very clearly did the legwork and the previously that the previously mentioned academics could not be bothered to do. 
He criticizes and compares the often Ivy League and suburban roots of those who wrote the history with those who lived it, saying his experiences enables me to write authoritatively. We were there. We saw it. We know what we saw. Keisha holds to account the lie that blacks in the neighborhood scared off whites without whom the cities fell apart. These immigrants and children of immigrants were not quitters. Post-war GIs of all races used their Montgomery GI Bill to finance a home, often being the first person in their family line to own a home they could call their own. These people would never surrender the birthright they had bought through the blood and sweat of a world war because they didn't like the color of the person moving into an already mixed racial bag. These people were fiercely patriotic to their neighborhood and practiced the type of zip code nationalism that has come to come back into vogue lately. Keisho interviewed dozens of current and former Newark residents, residents who, who anti-racist academics talk about but rarely speak of. Uniformly, they scoff at the notion that racism played a part in their decision. It was quite often literally life or death. The book's title, Untenable, paints a picture of the last vestiges of scrappy and determined residents trying to push back the tide. But this is misleading. <clears throat> Nothing pushed the families out of the city. The city they knew ceased to exist around them. Yes, some stayed to their own detriment and often fatally, but the traditions, safety, and greatness of the city they had helped build rotted away around them, replaced by a crime-infested racial homogeny. Members of all races fled from crime and moved to sacred neighborhoods. The refugees of the burning cities moved to the suburbs, where life was safer, but lost in the move was the feeling of community and the bonds that held the people together. Keschel's ode to his fellow refugees, refugees in a great urban dysphoria is a tragedy, and specifically an American tragedy. America, which has never lost a city to a modern war, watched helplessly as a generation of revolutionaries lied and razed their beloved cities to the ground by destroying the very values that built them brick by brick. Keschel's message is clear. If we want to retake our once beloved cities, and if we want to build them back to the beacons of hope and prosperity they once were, then we need to look at the real reasons they failed and not the reasons that make leftist money. We need to look at every statement accepted as fact pushed by the people who don't know and listen to the voices of our citizens who do. Those who were there and those who lived were forever altered by the tragedy that befell them. What ultimately happened to these cities is progressive liberal policy that elevated being a minority, that elevated uh, your oppression, how, how oppressed you were, how discriminated against you were that made it a virtue to not work hard, not, not bust your ass, not take care of your community, not take care of your family, but to rely on the government and the system to provide you everything you need. And anybody who's not doing that, obviously, it's because they have privilege. It's because they have so much better than you, and you deserve that too. And the government will give that to you if you vote for it enough. And those people, they hate you because you, because they have all the things that you don't have, the things that you deserve. And you just need to go take it from them. It stopped punishing crime. It stopped promoting hard work. It stopped promoting family values. 
and good Christian values and started pushing people into a us versus them instead of a actual community building. And that's why rural areas are becoming more popular these days because that's where you actually get those communities. That's why uh, new, like, what are becoming very homogenous suburban settings are becoming more popular. It's also why you see people, it's less about poverty and class and more about mentality and work ethic the people who are willing to put in the work who want to pull themselves up by their bootstraps so to say people who are willing to build that community to build something for themselves regardless of their race they're getting away from these cities where the virtue of being downtrodden and being a victim don't exist. Some of the nicest communities I've lived in in my travels all over the country are very diverse, but the people in the way they think and the way they approach the world are not. They're very nose to the grindstone, very family value oriented, very religious, and not just Christian. Uh, actual, actual devout practicing Judaism. Or uh, I've lived in a community in Mississippi where we had some uh, Hindus uh, and and also some Muslims. Like very devout very focused on doing what they're or doing their part working hard building a family building a strong unit building a strong community that's been stripped away from these big cities and the more we see all of these progressive policies get pushed the more you see them become these urban hellscapes where people can't get out fast enough escape from new york and escape from los angeles or very possibly a decade away, if if not sooner. And it's, it's not because of white flight. It's, it's not because of fear. It's because people need to feel a sense of safety and security and community. And people want to be surrounded by people who they trust are also trying to build something positive. And you'll never see that in the cities again. I, I think I think they're dead. I think this it's it. People are going to move away, and eventually they will die, and it'll probably be gruesome, especially for the people who are stuck there. That'll do it for today. I will be back. Oh, uh, I will announce it later in the week. We're we're going to follow up on the Manly Men series. We're going to do Manly Intellectuals. I believe it'll be Buck Johnson, it'll be Muniz, Josiah, and possibly Mark from 2-Bit Podcast. Um, if we can get everything coordinated, either Friday or Sunday, we'll go live. Uh, I will follow up with that later in the week as soon as I get a date nailed down. In the meantime, hope you have a great rest of your week, and I will see you then. Before you go, make sure you check out our great sponsor, Agorist Acres. 
Now at GorestAcres.com, you can find over 100 varieties of seeds. They've got vegetables, flowers, all kinds of stuff. They've got heritage brands, everything that you want to start any kind of garden that you need. It's free shipping on any order of $20 or more. They've got cool packaging, and most of the seeds come in a fancy glass vial, no paper envelopes. They accept U.S. dollars and crypto and can easily take either at checkout. Now be sure to head over to agoristacres.com and anything that you get, use the promo code FCT at checkout for 10% off your order. I say all the time that you need to be starting your own garden, you need to be growing your own food, you need to be getting off the grid and becoming less dependent on grocery stores and stuff like that. Agorist Acres is a great first start. They have got everything you need for whatever kind of garden you want. Great people, great product, highly recommend. So go check them out.